what you've been able to do through the years, Murray, overseas. So over to you. Thank you, John. I don't know about the living legend bit. <laughs> I thought a legend was something that isn't basically true. <laughs> so it's really nice to be here, actually. Um, this has been a long delayed appearance, really, hasn't it? Years ago, we were going to, but it never kind of happened. And so it's really nice to be here, and especially to be here on the last day of your missions week. And thank you, Pam, for that testimony, wherever you've gone. Um, yeah, that was very encouraging hearing all that. After the mosque shooting, I was asked to bring a message about Islam. And so I did. I, I prepared this message on uh, what God was doing in the Muslim world. And uh, the word got out about it. And actually, I started getting invited to go and deliver this message all over the place. So I think this is the 14th time I've actually given this message. So I should know it. Oh, Marge could get up and say it, I think. <clears throat> She's heard it most of the time. But I guess it's also quite apparent that it's a sort of appropriate time with the trial of the, uh, the guy who did the massacre starting tomorrow, which is certainly something we can be praying about. <clears throat> Excuse me. So what I'd like to talk about is God's great surprises because one of the key things about the mission growth of the... Oh, thank you very much. You're very kind. Do I drink all this? <laughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> one of the interesting things about the growth of the church over, over the years has been that most often... Um, a real advance for the gospel doesn't happen because some group of people have sat down and strategically planned it. It happens because God does something out of the blue and unexpectedly. Now, that's what I really want to talk about this morning, and I've called this God's Great Surprises. And um, I'd like to read to you from Acts chapter 10. Um, the background to this, Jesus had told the disciples to take the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. They got as far as Samaria, but I guess the, the, these good Orthodox Jews, the thought of going to the ends of the earth was pretty off-putting. And uh, so they stayed in, in the land of Israel, and then God did something out of the blue, totally unexpected. And that's really one, one I want to talk about this morning. Acts chapter 10, verses 1 to 6. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day, at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius... Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord, he asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He's staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. So here's a pagan, Roman, but who's a devout man. He's a God-fearer. 
That meant he, he believed in the God of Israel, but hadn't become a Jew. He hadn't committed himself to circumcision and the rest of it. And so out of the blue, this angel comes. And so his emissaries are on their way to uh, Joppa to meet Peter. But God has to do something in Peter's mind because he wouldn't even speak to uh, uncircumcised men. It was unthinkable, let alone go into their house. And so Peter was hungry, so he goes up on the roof of his house. And um, I think we've got a picture of this. And um, then he, has, he falls into a trance. And in this trance, he has a vision. And he sees this great sheet being let down from heaven and all these animals in it that the Jews regarded as unclean. And he hears a voice saying to him, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. And he says, Lord, I've never eaten any unclean animals. I wouldn't do that. And God, three times this happens. And finally, God says to him, Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. So Peter's pondering what this means, and there's a knock at the door. And here are these guys from Cornelius. And so Peter and some of his friends go with them. And eventually they turn up at Cornelius' house, and we pick the story up again in verse 34. He's arrived in, in the home of Cornelius. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is this is an, a, an amazing statement for an Orthodox Jew. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened through the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who'd come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They've received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. And the apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. So here's this amazing breakthrough for the gospel. Jesus had 
said the gospel was to go to the, the ends of the earth. And this is the moment where it begins to happen. And uh, Peter goes and, and speaks to this group of uh, Gentile people. And as he's presenting the message, before he gets to the punchline and gives an appeal, the Holy Spirit falls on these Gentiles and they start speaking in tongues. Now, as a good Pentecostal Christian would know, this is a sure sign that God is, is, um, is touching these people. And they said, man, these people have received the Holy Spirit just the way we have. And uh, so we better baptize them. So they did. And so Peter gets back to Jerusalem. And the, these, these are, are, are Jewish people who nevertheless have come to faith in Jesus. And they say to him, this is a terrible thing you've done, going to the home of uncircumcised. These guys are unclean. You don't associate with them. And so Peter tells them the story. How an angel had appeared to Cornelius and how he'd gone with Cornelius' friends and, and what had happened, that as I was speaking to them, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as he did on us at the beginning. Some of the Jews who were there said, well, this is wonderful. This means that even the Gentiles can find the salvation of God. This is something we never dreamed of for centuries. The prophets said one day this would happen. But now it's happening. But the others, other Jews who said, don't be fooled by this. Sure, these people have had a religious experience. But if they were true believers, they wouldn't just stop at this point. They'd get circumcised, they'd eat kosher food, they'd keep the feasts, and they'd do all the requirements of the Jewish religion. So from that point on, there's a division among Jews who followed Jesus. These are not Jews who'd rejected Jesus. These are Jews who'd followed Jesus. These are devout you know, believing Jesus' followers, divided. Some said, God is doing some new thing. This is wonderful. And others said, these people are not real believers. If they were real believers, they'd become like us. And so a gulf opened up. And everywhere the apostles went through the Gentile world, there were some Jewish people, Judaizers they were called, who followed them. And these became the bane of the Apostle Paul's life. Everywhere he went, these uh, Judaizers followed him. It says, all very well to believe in Jesus, but you need to become like us. You need to be get circumcised and eat kosher food and all this kind of stuff. And Paul wrote Galatians to address, to address them. So this went on for the first few hundred years as the gospel spread through the, um, through the Roman, in, into the Roman Empire. And then in the 4th century, a really significant thing happened. And that was uh, the Emperor Constantine. Uh, this is him sitting on a, in his throne. Uh, he professed to be a Christian. There's a great debate about whether it was a genuine conversion of but but the upshot was that he and his followers uh, decreed that Christianity would be the religion of the Roman Empire, which meant that at this point the Christian faith became a uh, faith for non-Jews, for Gentiles, and the Jews were excluded. 
And so for the next 1,600 years, there's a huge gulf that, that existed between the Jewish believers, uh, Jewish people, uh, and, and the Christian community. There's a huge gulf. 1,600 years of separation, persecution, uh, and uh, occasionally someone would have the courage to believe in Jesus, which meant not simply believing Jesus, but it meant leaving your whole Jewish culture, your family, your upbringing, everything, and becoming part of a Christian community who were alien. It's hard for us to appreciate just how big this gulf is. Only a few brave souls made the transition. And then something remarkable happened in the early 1970s. And those of us who are old enough will remember, remember amazing movement of the Holy Spirit, the Jesus movement, uh, at the beginning of the 1970s. I don't know how many of you were around in those days. It was amazing. The hippies of the world started coming to Jesus. And uh, Sprayden was a Jesus movement church. We had all these weird jokers with great long haircut and all this kind of stuff. And uh, it was wonderful, wonderful. Now, but among these uh, hippies in Southern California, there were a number of Jewish young people who came to Jesus. And we've got a slide here, one of them too. And, uh, and a very interesting thing happened. These Jewish young people came to Jesus and uh, were committed to him. But they said, we don't want to be Christians because the Christians have persecuted. They've been them. They've been another culture. And we've received terrible persecution at the hands of Christians. We don't want to be Christians, but we do want to follow Jesus. The re Christian response initially was fascinating. There are a lot of Christians who said, this is wonderful. After 1,600 years of alienation, there are Jews coming to Jesus. Hallelujah. This is wonderful. But there are other Christians who said, this is a deception. If these people were real believers, they would become Christians like us. They'd join the church and they'd leave behind all the legalism of Judaism. And so there was a division. How do you respond to this kind of stuff when it happens? You think, wow, God is doing something amazing. We never anticipated this. Is it important that culturally people become Christian? Or can people become followers of Jesus in their own culture? Which is a huge missional challenge, huge, which is at the heart of the spread of the gospel today. The big shocks in the 1970s weren't over because in 1979 uh, in Iran there was the Islamic Revolution which was largely driven by young people who were hoping for a society free from corruption that came from the Shah and they thought it would come to them if they, if they embraced Islam. And so they did. The Ayatollahs arrived. But the outcome of this was a new society of repression. Uh, a, a strict Sharia law was imposed in 
in uh, Iran. And uh, a persecution began against what Protestant Christians there were. They were mainly Pentecostals, actually, um, in Iran. And then the most amazing thing began to happen after a few years. Uh, the word began to trickle out to the West that there were Iranians who were coming to faith in Jesus and forming uh, underground house churches. This was staggering. Actually, the very first time I preached this message, afterwards there was this guy came out of the church and uh, I'd never seen him before. Swarthy looking joker with a beard, flung his arms around me and he said, thank you, brother, for telling the truth. He said, I'm an Iranian Muslim and I've become a follower of Jesus. And I thought, wow. And this is happening in Iran. There are, no one knows how many Iranians have come to faith in Jesus. I've heard estimates from varying from half a million to about three million or even more. Uh, and there's certainly a significant a movement of uh, Jesus followers forming together in in uh, in underground house churches. Um, but it isn't just in Iran. The Iranian Muslims are Shiite, Shiites, but the majority of Muslims are, are Sunni. And um, there's, there's an American missionary who's worked for decades among the Muslim world uh, named David Garrison, who's written a book called A Wind in the House of Islam. If you want to read a book that is really talking about what God is doing in the Muslim world. This, this is the book to read, actually. And um, Garrison tells this amazing story that in every house of Islam, that Muslims talk about nine different houses. That's like North Africa and the Middle East and Indonesia and, and so on, all the areas that are Muslim. In every one of these, there are now movements of people who are coming to Jesus. Now, this has never happened. For centuries, for 1,400 years actually, from the emergence of Islam as a distinct religion, there's been this gulf. They've been the enemy. The Crusades have been fought. Uh, almost no one has crossed the barrier from Islam to Christianity. Something is happening in the world that has never happened before. And how do we respond to it? Some of these people are becoming followers of Jesus and remaining in their Islamic culture. And some Christians say, this is wonderful. This is the most amazing thing that's happened in terms of the spread of the gospel in 2,000 years. No one saw this coming out of the blue in the most unlikely place. People are coming to Jesus. But others have said, oh no, this is not real at all. If these people were real believers, they wouldn't stay in their Muslim culture. They'd come and join a Christian culture and join a church, be like us, preferably be Baptists, say. Hey? Uh, you know, no one has seen this happen. And the big question is, how, how is it happening? Why hasn't it happened before? Why is it happening now? Well, let me just mention a few, five things, actually, that can help towards explaining this. And one, one thing has been that in the last few decades, there's been a mammoth increase in prayer. Some of you 
probably take part in the 30 days of prayer for the Muslim world during Ramadan. And that's just one example of um, a large number of prayer movements that have grown up reasonably spontaneously in the Christian world over the last few decades. Christians have felt, but Pam was talking about how even before the, the mosque massacre, she had this stirring about Muslims. And, and the Holy Spirit has been doing this, stirring this kind of uh, longing to pray. Um, the second thing has been um, the emergence of signs and wonders in the Muslim world. Um, we Christians have felt signs and wonders are our prerogative, you know. And now all around the Muslim world there are many, many stories of visions and dreams that Muslims are having where Jesus appears to them and says, come follow me. The most amazing story I've ever read, and I've actually met this guy, is about the story of Ahmed Joktan. And uh, Ahmed is the son of the Mufti of Mecca. Now, he's the guy, I mean, Saudi Arabia is the heart of the Muslim world. Mecca is the center of that. And the, the, the Mufti of Mecca is sort of like, in the religious level, the leading Muslim in the world. Joktan, um, Ahmed Joktan is his son. Uh, his father wanted him to study and be become a, a Muslim scholar. He wanted to become a doctor. But he had to uh, understand English because all the teaching for becoming a Muslim, becoming a doctor, occurred in the Emirates and it was all in English. And so to learn English, he came to New Zealand. And just a few years ago in Auckland, he was staying in a hotel. And during Ramadan, he was fasting and praying. And one night, he had this terrifying experience where this man walked into his room. And he said he was shining. All his hotel room was sh shut and so on, but he walked in through the windows. And it was in his room, and he said to him, follow me. He had no idea who it was. He thought it was the devil, actually. And he said to him, where do I find you? And he said a picture appeared alongside him of, of a building. He thought it looked like a, a, a law court with big pillars. And he said, go to this building. You'll find me there. He was terrified. He wanted to go back to Saudi Arabia. But he couldn't get a flight for another week. So he was walking around the streets in Auckland. He went around the top of Queen Street. And here was this building. It was actually the Baptist Tabernacle. And uh, so with great trepidation, he went into this building. He met a man there named Brian Johnson. Some of you will know Brian. He heads up a movement called Friends of Friends Fellowship through New Zealand. And Brian told him about who the person was in the, uh, he'd met in the vision. And over several days, uh, Ahmed committed his life to Christ. And uh, eventually he went back to Saudi Arabia. His father tried to kill him. Uh, and then the, the Saudi regime had two attempts to kill him. And eventually he uh, escaped to New Zealand. And the New Zealand Immigration Service refused to accept him as a, 
as a, an authentic refugee, I think largely because the Saudis told them that this was a religious extremist. Anyway, he now lives in the United States where he's formed a, a um, ministry that's reaching out to, um, to Muslims in Saudi Arabia. As a, but stories like this are happening all the time. It's the amazing thing, these signs and wonders happening among uh, like Gentile unbelievers. Third thing has been um, a, a significant increase in, in, in mission outreach, but with a significant difference. Whereas in the past, uh, mission work largely centered around helping individuals out of a, a Muslim culture into a Christian one, now the, the major thrust now is helping Muslims come to faith in Jesus and leaving it to God to where they end up in terms of their culture and so on. The fourth thing has been the growth of militant forms of Islam. I mean, we've all been horrified at the growth of jihadist movement, ISIS, Al-Qaeda and all these groups and, and uh, find it hard to understand how can these people you know, kill in the name of God, kill innocent people. And many Muslims feel exactly the same way and they've been uh, just as deeply disturbed by this as we are and who at this point have opened themselves up more to an understanding of who, who Jesus is. Uh, and the, the last one, the fifth one, there's a whole lot of reasons, but it, just the fifth one to mention has been the translation of the Quran into more languages than Arabic, because for centuries the, the, Muslim, the, the Muslim world would only recognize uh, the Quran in Arabic, just like the Catholic Church for, for centuries in the Middle Ages uh, would only accept the Bible in Latin. And those people who tried to um, translate the Bible into English or other European languages were usually burnt at the stake for their efforts. And Islam, it's been the very, very similar in uh, Islam. But I'll tell you a story about that, about a man named uh, Ahmed Jok. No, that was the last story about um, a, a man named Ahmed Hassan. He, this um, David uh, Garrison tells this story. Uh, th this guy is an Indian Muslim, uh, and he a very devout Muslim. He used to read his Quran at work, and um, if you're Muslim, you you kind of read the the Quran out loud. And he did this at work, and his boss said to him, you know, what's, what's this book you're reading? And he said, oh, it's my Quran. And he said, uh, it sounds nice when you read it, because the Muslims, they chant the Quran. The and he said, what does it mean? And he said, I don't know. I can't understand Arabic. He said, you mean to say you're spending all this time sitting there day after day reading this book, and you don't understand what it says? He said, you're mad. Now, of course, he was greatly offended by this. Uh, but then he thought about it and thought, well, maybe, maybe he's right. So he got a translation of the Quran in Bangla because he was in West Bengal right alongside Bangladesh. And he began to read it, and he got a great shock because he said, the teachers in the mosque had told me all along that the Quran was all about Muhammad. But he said, as I read it, 
I found there's only three or four references to Muhammad and there's nearly a hundred references directly or indirectly to Jesus. So I went back to the teachers in the mosque and said, why aren't you teaching us about Jesus? And they said, well, because of, of the Quran's about Muhammad. And he said, well, it's not. You know, <laughs> he said, they told him he was, he was mad. And then, um, but eventually he found an old, an old imam who said to him, you're right, he said, but if you want to understand more about Jesus, you're going to have to go to the Christian community and ask them uh, for, a, for a Bible. So he did. He got a New Testament. And he began to read the New Testament, and he committed his life to Jesus, got baptized. But he had no great desire to leave his Muslim culture and join the Christian culture. So what he started doing was with his Muslim friends, showing them just what he'd discovered, giving them a Quran in their own language, showing them the passages about Jesus, and then if they were interested, giving them a New Testament. And then when they committed their lives to Jesus, he baptized them. And so David Garrison, uh, uh, in, in doing this, this research for this book that he wrote, he said to him, so how many, how many uh, Muslims in your movement, because by this stage it had grown to a movement with uh, teachers and uh, small groups, they call Isa Jamets, which are uh, Jesus groups, the, and they have people leading these groups whom they call imams and, and so on. He said, how many people would be in your movement? He said, oh, I don't really know, but he said, in the last decade, we've seen 33,000 Muslims commit their lives to Christ. This is in India, in West Bengal. No one saw this coming. No one saw it coming. Oh. So if you, if you read the Quran... Where do you find this stuff about Jesus? The problem is the Quran is a very difficult book to understand if you, because it's not, it's not like the Bible. The Bible tells a story from, beginning, you know, from the beginning of creation to the end of the age. It's this great saga that the Bible relates the whole story. The Quran, on the other hand, is just a whole lot of pronouncements from Muhammad. It's hard going to read it in English translation. Uh, and the problem is that it's in two parts because Muhammad had these um, revelations, he called them. The first they began in Mecca. Um, and uh, the, 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 he tells the story that Muhammad was a trader. And as he traded, there were all these uh, caravan of traders came through Arabia and told the stories, they, among them were Jews and, and Christians, they told the stories out of the Bible. And so Muhammad got these stories, and um, they were part of his revelations while he was in Mecca. And the first part of uh, the Quran is, is largely the retelling of the biblical story, uh, plus a bit of other stuff from Muhammad. Um, and his mission was to get the uh, pagan uh, 
polytheists of Arabia to become followers of the God of Abraham. And that was his mission. So he got a number of followers in Mecca, and then the Meccans turned against him, and he had to flee. He fled, fled to Medina, also in Arabia. And from that point on, his revelations became much more hard-edged. So you've got uh, the, the statements in the Quran about you know, death to the infidels and slaughter of the Jews and the Christians, all this kind of stuff come in the second part of the Quran. Now the problem is, in the Quran, it's not laid out in chronological order. It's all mixed up, and it's the, 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 the biggest chapters down to the smallest chapters, a bit like Paul's letters in the New Testament. They're arranged the same way. It's very confusing trying to figure out with Paul's letters which ones were written first. And, and you've got to go off to Bible college or something and have someone explain it all to you. And so the Quran's like that. Uh, and, and when you just read the Quran in a translation, you've got, you've got to get hold of a translation that explains when did these, um, which ones come from Mecca and which ones come from Medina, because the, the, the tone of them is actually quite different. Now, on top of that, the problem is there's, there's an Islamic doctrine called, um, called abrogation, where the latter revelations of Muhammad replace the earlier ones. And this is how, why, why you end up with this incredible disparity with his, within Islam. If you meet most Muslims in a country like New Zealand, they will be peaceful people. And they will tell you that Islam is a religion of peace. Now, if all you read are the early revelations of Muhammad, that's a legitimate understanding of Islam. But the jihadists, you know, the people from ISIS and all this hard core people who are kill, out there killing people, their inspiration comes from the second part of uh, Muhammad's revelations. And that's why you can end up with both these understandings of Islam, each of them arguing that their understanding of Islam uh, is the right one. So if, if you have Muslim friends and you want to talk to them about Jesus, the place to start is with the uh, Islamic verses uh, from the, the Mecca revelations of Muhammad. And what, what do you find when, when you read those? So I thought I'll um, put one or two of them up on, on the screen here. Uh, this is from um, Quran Shura 3, is chapter 3 of the Quran. Um, when the angel said, Mary, God gives you good news of a word from him whose name will be the Messiah, Jesus, son of Mary, he will be highly distinguished in this world and the hereafter and brought near to God. She said, Lord, how can I have a boy when no man has ever touched me? He said, God creates what he wills. When he decides a matter, he simply says to it, be, then it is. And he will teach him the book, the wisdom, the Torah and the gospel, and he will be a messenger to the people of Israel. Then the Messiah speaks, I by God's permission heal men born blind and lepers and give life to the dead. And God said, Jesus, I will cause you to die and raise you up to me and purify you from those who denied the truth, and I will exalt your followers over those who deny you until resurrection day. 
Now, the thing is, most Christians have no idea that there are passages like that in the Quran which can be used as, as a bridge to the gospel of Christ. The problem is, most Muslims have no idea these verses are there either. Because uh, in, in the mosque, most often, they just don't teach um, the Quran the way we teach the Bible in church. Well, in churches like this, we teach the Bible, but uh, in a lot of churches, they don't teach the Bible either. Uh, and they give political speeches and so on. And uh, that's the case often. And so if you want to share with Jesus, with a Muslim, this is the place to start. And so now we have a, um, a phenomenon in the world that no one saw coming. And uh, a while ago, Christianity Today magazine um, did a headline story on us, worshipping Jesus in the mosque. No one ever thought this could happen, that Muslims could come to faith in Jesus and stay within their Islamic culture. Now, what's the Christian reaction? Well, some Christians say, this is wonderful. <laughs> Never in our imaginations did we see millions, because now it is millions of Muslims who would come to faith in Jesus. And a lot of them would opt to remain within their own Muslim culture so they can lead other Muslims to Jesus. And they could form, uh, they could worship Jesus in these Isa Jamats, these house churches, and start movements. But other, other Christians say this is a deception. If these people were true believers, they would leave all the superstition and evil of, of an Islamic uh, culture and come over here and join us, become like us, become members of a Christian culture. And so this is the mission challenge in the world today. There's a challenge with everyone. The great gulf in New Zealand, the great failure of the New Zealand church has been reaching Maori. Very few Maori. These days I get to preach around all over the show. There are very, very few Maori in our Pākehā churches. Some people say, oh, well, they you know, just harden their hearts and against the gospel and so on. Other people would say, there's a cultural leap if you're a Maori. You've got to leave your Maori culture and join the Pākehā culture in a Christian church. So this, this mission challenge goes through every, every situation in the world today. And what's the most important thing for you? The people become Christians just like you? Good, white, Baptist, Pākehā Christians? Or is the most important thing in the world the people come to Jesus and learn how to be his followers within their own culture so then they can reach other people in their culture. And this is the huge mission challenge that lies before us. How are you going to respond to it? God bless you.
Um, I think the best way for us to 